This morning we continue in our study in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and more particularly we continue in our study about widows in 1 Timothy 5. Last Sunday night we looked at the opening verses of 1 Timothy 5 and heard there some words about widows. It continues now up through verse 16. And so we read 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 16 this morning. First Timothy 5 at verse 1, the word of God, the Holy Spirit. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, Younger women as sisters with all purity. Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. For this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command, that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And here's our text. Verse 9, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. And not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan." If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. God's holy word. Let's ask for his blessing together. O Lord, our God, before your word, we sit today. We pray that you would cause it to be taught and proclaimed faithfully, that you give us hearts to understand it, and more than that, Lord, to embrace it and believe it, we be not mere hearers of the word, but doers. We pray, Lord, that as your word shows us a way and we find the ways in which our lives have been crooked, that we'd be pleased to repent and to seek Christ and his holy way. So, Lord, we pray that even in these moments now that we might find this worship service to be the Holy Spirit's workshop and that here, Heavenly Father, that you would mold us and shape us in the path of our Lord Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. People of God, last time we began to see that God cares very much about widows. It's near and dear to his heart. In fact, as we mentioned last week, James makes that remarkable statement 
that pure and undefiled religion before God our Father is this, to look after orphans and widows and their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. The Lord characterizes that as true religion, to care for widows. And our God is the God who cares for widows. Though he is high and exalted, though he's mighty and powerful, he doesn't, as some of the powerful ones of our age do, oppress and manipulate the weak, but he has a special regard for them, a special care for them. He describes himself in Psalm 68 as as a father of the fatherless and a defender of widows as God in his holy habitation. The Lord wants to be known. He makes himself known across the pages of his word as a, a God who is very concerned about the weak and the needy. In fact, you know, throughout the Old Testament, there's three groups that are often found classed together, the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. And God puts a hedge of protection and care around them. In the Old Testament, there were gleaning laws, weren't there, so that those who were without could could glean in the fields and provide. And God rebuked his people, and they oppressed the weak and the widow. And Jesus, as he came to earth, he, well, he cheered the widow's heart when he raised her one and only son from the dead. He had no sympathy for the Pharisees that devoured widows' houses. And when we come to the New Testament, it's interesting, isn't it, that as the Holy Spirit is poured out, and this morning we're not looking at a particularly Pentecost text, but this is all very much related to God the Holy Spirit poured out upon the church, that as the Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2, and the bonds of the church grow, and they begin to love and care for each other. Isn't it striking that what happens in Acts chapter 6 is that a new office is set apart, at least the precursor to the deacon office, but the occasion for that was particularly the neglect of some of the widows and their needs. So the Holy Spirit leads the church to appoint men to care for the widows who've been neglected. Well, this morning, God cares about the widows, as our text reveals. And because we are the children of God and called to imitate our Father, we're to care about the widow, the needy widow. But we also see this morning now in the second part of this chapter that not only does the church care for widows, but the church is called to receive the care of widows. And so let's look at this this morning. That the Lord Jesus Christ leads his church to properly care for needy widows and to receive their care. Well, I'd like to look at the text, first of all, considering what's the the proper enrollment of widows. And then secondly, to look at those dangers that Paul speaks of. Younger widows are not to be enrolled because of some particular dangers involved. And then that last verse that points to the responsibility that we all have. So first of all, the, the proper enrollment of widows, and then secondly, the dangers to be avoided, and then thirdly, the responsibility that we all have as God's people. Our text begins at verse 9 by saying, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. And that language, into the number, is a translation of a single word in Greek that means to enlist or to enroll and was used at times for even like the enlistment of soldiers. And the question that arises as you study the passage is, what is this official list? What is this enrollment? Is it A, a list of needy widows for whom the church is to care? 
Or is it B, a list of widows who are being set apart for some particular ministry or service in the church? If we say it's A, it's a list of destitute widows that the church needs to care for, then we ask the question, well, why can't younger widows be on the list? Aren't younger widows sometimes in need? In fact, younger widows with children might be the most in need. But if it's B, a list of widows who are to serve in the church or to serve in some charity work, then we ask, why is it taken up in the context of all these commands to care for widows? Well, I think it's a challenging passage. But on the whole, I think the best understanding of the passage is that it's both. It is a list of needy widows that the church takes under their care with the expectation and pledge that these widows are going to be involved as long as they have strength in some ministry on behalf of the church. There's a couple reasons for, for seeing the widows being called to service here. For one thing, there's this list of qualifications. Don't let a widow be taken on the list unless she's well reported for all these good works. She has to be a, a proven servant, a humble servant. And since back in 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for elder and deacon were given, and they, in order to serve the church, had to meet certain criteria. They had to be not as here in our list, where the woman, of course, has to be a a woman of one man. They were to be men of one woman, right? A one woman man. Here the widows to be, have been a a one-man woman. It's a, it's, a, it's a faithfulness in marriage. And, and the elders and deacons, they were called to be those who had managed their own household well, those who were hospitable and so forth. And so there were qualifications given that were related to the assignment given to them. So it seems that when we have the qualifications for the widow's list, it might be in correlation with an assignment that they're to fulfill. The other reason that we think that the widows were called to a service here is because later on when it speaks of the younger widows, it says they might, after being put on the list, want to get married, and in doing that now would be abandoning the faith, or as we'll see, the pledge that they had made. Well, our passage doesn't give us any specific details about the purpose of the list, But read as a whole, I think it has that double purpose of financially supporting the destitute widows and receiving their service. Nothing here is said specifically about the nature of their service. There's no designation that's given to them for the service, no title. But I think that the requirements hint at the kind of work that they might be involved in. In the New Testament, there's no specific society or company or order of widows described, but it's interesting in Acts chapter 9 that we read about Dorcas, and then at her death, we have this group called the widows, and when she's raised from the dead, she's presented alive to the widows, among others. And so there's this class. Others have pointed out that in the centuries after Paul's time, there comes to be in church history, something of an order of widows. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, writes, there is sufficient evidence to show that in the early church, such a body of widows 
with definite functions actually existed. Thus, Tertullian, probably about the year 204, referring definitely to 1 Timothy 5.9, states that the task of these women was, quote, that their experience, training, and all the affections may have rendered them capable readily, assisting all others with counsel and comfort. So based on this text and based partly on church history, many have have suggested that, that these widows might be involved in the works of caring for the sick and for the needy and for the infirm and perhaps for orphans that were present, especially in that day, but also in works of teaching training up women for their profession of faith and baptism, new converts and the like, giving guidance and direction to widows and orphans who are being supported by the church, helping them know how they ought to live and so forth. And clearly, even today, we see, don't we, that there are tasks that, that, that the elders and deacons as men find it difficult, right? There's places perhaps they shouldn't go or ministries they shouldn't engage and women are sent to go do those works. All the more back in the, the first century, when, when the, the social barrier was even greater, much greater between men and women, there were, there were places of service, right? There were needs that needed to be met. There weren't the kind of medical care and facilities that we have today. There were physical needs and so forth. And clearly, these were things that men shouldn't do. There were places... There were ways of ministering that would be difficult for men. And so they might send women in all of their giftedness who would be much more of a blessing. So again, it's not perfectly clear, but it seems here that what's envisioned is a list where there's a mutual obligation. The church will support them, and they will labor in a certain ministry on behalf of the church, caring for needs, encouraging teaching ladies and so forth, how to love their husbands and children, as Titus says. When it's understood this way, if we understand the passage this way, then we can understand that the passage is not suggesting that the church doesn't help other widows, like younger widows. It doesn't help those who are recent converts and don't have a background of good works that are mentioned here. But it does imply that the church only enters into this permanent relationship of mutual commitment and responsibility with widows over 60 who meet these criteria. And whoever we read the text, these criteria are held up as an honored litany of good works, and we can all be encouraged by them. Let's look at them for a moment here. The first one's not a spiritual achievement, but he does, I should say something about being over 60. Many note that in the ancient world, the age 60 was sort of the mark of becoming older. You don't have to be offended. The age expectancy in life was probably different than in all of that, but it was recognized at the age of 60 that one had reached maturity, and also in that day and age, there was much less likely somebody remarrying after that age. And then he mentions, as we said, that, that there was faithfulness in marriage, that the widow had been a one-man woman. She had been known as an example. If she would teach other women, then she ought to be known as a shining example of what a devoted and godly and loving wife was. But then he goes on in verse 10 to speak about her being well-reported for good works. That the one who would be taken out of this list has to have the recommendation of the church body recognized for her good works. 
If she's brought up children, she didn't consider the nurture and raising of children, the bearing of children as something beneath her. But she gave herself to the task. She devoted herself to caring for whatever children God granted her, training them up in the Lord, whether they be her own biological children or even orphans or maybe adopted children. She was known for that. And then if she had shown hospitality, if she's lodged strangers and washed the saints' feet, remember there weren't the nice, clean, safe hotels in those days. Christians were dependent on others for for hospitality, for lodging, especially traveling preachers and missionaries. And this woman was a servant of those who came. She opened her heart and home to them. Jesus, of course, would be the one who would teach his disciples how to wash feet. And here she is, a disciple of Christ. And then if she's relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work, she's cared about those in need. She's, she's taken others' troubles upon herself. She's ministered to those who were destitute or persecuted. I think when you read all of this, you, you wonder what kind of a woman this is or your minds go to, and you think about women in the church today and, and the wonder of a life of this kind of good works, but you wonder, where does this come from? And Romans 12 is one of those passages that shows us where it comes from when Paul says, I, I appeal to you by the mercies of God that you present your life a living sacrifice. In view of all these mercies, Romans 1 through 11, I appeal to you now to offer that life of gratitude to your Savior. And you say, well, what does it look like? Well, he goes on to talk about the transformed mind and all of this. And then he comes in Romans 12, 10 to say, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Well, these are the kind of women that Paul is speaking of here. This woman who has, in response to the gospel, offered her life to Christ and poured herself out in a life of good works. There's a great joy in that, right? And a great dignity in that. One of the principles I think we can gather from this first part of our passage this morning is to remember that there is an honor in work. Just because a widow may be financially destitute, and that's what he's talking about when he keeps talking about those who are really widows. He's not not belittling or demeaning a widow who who lost her husband and, and is financially secure, and he's not in any way saying that she doesn't experience real grief. But when he says one who's really a widow, he's using the word widow to mean destitute, to to, to being alone. She has no one else. But you see, somebody can be alone and destitute and still have something to contribute to the body. Maybe she can't provide for herself financially after age 60. And in a culture where it's hard to find gainful employment for a woman in that spot, But she can help in a lot of ways. You see, sometimes we're tempted to think that if somebody in the church is needy, whatever the need is, then they get set aside on the sideline and everybody just works to serve them. But that's wrong. 
In his little commentary, John Stott summarizes it nicely when he says, Widows, together with others in similar circumstances like single mothers, abused, and divorced women, should have the opportunity both to receive according to their need and to give according to their ability, that is, both to be served and to serve. And then he illustrates with a, uh, an anecdote about uh, refugee ministry in Jordan that he that he visited, where it wasn't just that the refugees were given food and clothing and shelter, but then they were given a place to serve in various cottage industries. And we've all seen that. We see it with Word and Deed, don't we? That Word and Deed ministry sometimes buy sewing machines so a lady can labor, start a business, or they, they buy seeds so a man can plant and farm. And this is part of how God has made us. There's a dignity to working. And in the church, too, we're called to grant opportunities to people. And it's worth, it's worth it as a church body and as deacons to help cultivate those opportunities and to show them to people who say, I can't do anything. Look at me. And they say, no, there's something for you to do. Maybe physically weak or financially poor, but we are spiritually rich. And it's our joy to contribute to the good of the body. Well, the proper enrollment of widows. But let's move on and consider the dangers that the Apostle Paul speaks of. The dangers here. Obviously, one danger would be enrolling a woman who's not really a servant, who doesn't meet the qualifications. But the dangers we want to look at now are in verse 11 and following, and it's the danger of enrolling younger widows. Verse 11, but refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation, because they have cast off their first faith. So I mentioned earlier, the word faith there is a word that is often translated as a, a solemn promise or a pledge. And that may be how we ought to translate it here. They've cast off their first pledge. It seems that the apostle here foresees a situation where younger widows are taken onto this list to be supported by the church and to give themselves in a particular ministry on behalf of the church. But then, having them put on the list, after a while, they grow restless. They have desires for companionship or sexual desires. And now they're longing to be married. And the problem is not that they want to be married. Marriage is a good thing. Those who have used this text, by the way, to institute these horrible vows of perpetual celibacy among young ladies and send them off to a nunnery have completely misused the text. Celibacy is not some higher life. It's not some greater spiritual attainment or perfection. That's not at all what our text is saying. But the text, I think, is saying that these younger widows have committed themselves to serve now their life in this ministry and to be supported to their old age by the church. And yet partway in, they have different feelings, and now they face a conflict, whether to keep my pledge of service or to pledge my life to some man and get married, and I can't do both. If I go start a family in a home, then my energies will be there and not here. And so Paul says, don't put these younger widows in that kind of a situation. Save them from that dilemma. Lest the church be harmed by broken commitments and these young ladies be harmed in their consciences 
let them be left free to marry. And I think if that's how the text is to be read, it's another text in the Bible that shows us how seriously God takes our commitments. It's not entirely clear what the context is here in Ephesus where Timothy is ministering and how they have things set up and and all of that. But if that's what this is about, that they not break their first pledge, then it reminds us that, especially in our culture, where the word doesn't mean much anymore, that God has heard our pledges and our promises, and he cares. In a few weeks, we hope to install new office bearers, and we ask them to stand before us and to make a pledge, to take a solemn vow that they will fulfill an office, an assignment. It's not one that a man can take lightly or simply walk away from one day for frivolous reasons. All those who are in office, we have to remind ourselves, we've, we've given our word, we've pledged before God to fulfill our office. And for all of us in the church, whatever we've committed to do, we should take it seriously. Whatever we've signed up for, We should prove to be dependable and conscientious and cheerful in our service to serve to the best of our ability. As parents, we've stood up at baptisms and made pledges to raise our children in the fear of the Lord. We as parents need to evaluate that once in a while. Are we doing that? Are we teaching? Are we instructing? Are we setting an example? Are we teaching our children how to read the scriptures, how to honor the Lord's Day, and all of these things. In our marriages, we've made pledges, we've taken vows, and we should not be casual or lackadaisical in our relationship, thinking that this relationship will just sustain itself. We, we are to keep this relationship warm, praying and working, that our commitment might be maintained. The first danger is that these women find themselves turning away from the pledge they've made. But the second danger, if younger women are taken to the list, is spoken in verse 13. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. It's not too difficult to imagine how it might go. If these younger widows are suddenly receive the commitment of the church to take care of them, and now they're enlisted in this work, a work that puts them in contact with lots of people, maybe they're going from house to house to minister and care for the sick. And these young ladies with lots of health and strength and vigor, maybe even more vigor than work they have to do, become a bit idle and begin to take advantage of their intimate knowledge of what's going on in people's lives and homes, to turn now into gossips and busybodies and talking about things they've seen and heard that they ought not to talk about. And now suddenly, instead of being a help to the church, they're causing trouble in the church. So Paul says in verse 14, Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. If they desire to marry, if they don't have the gift of singleness, they should marry. It's a good thing. 
should enjoy that gift of partnership and motherhood and the smile of God upon their diligent labors in their own home then. Remarriage is sanctioned by God for widows, both here and in 1 Corinthians 7.39, that a widow is at liberty to be married to whom she will, but only in the Lord. And Paul says if they would take up this delight of the marriage, partnership, and family, then both the sisters and the church might avoid not only temptations, but the reproach and the slander of the enemy. Paul is not just imagining what might happen, but verse 15, he says, For some have already turned aside after Satan. The apostle, I think, is saying that the church must not be outwitted by the evil one, even in her care for widows. It's a good reminder this morning, I think, that we ought to pray earnestly for our deacons. It's a tremendous good that can be accomplished through the ministry of compassion and mercy. But it's also fraught with dangers that misapplied mercy and support could lead to unintended consequences. And deacons themselves must pray for themselves, never thinking this is, you know, this is just an unspiritual ministry. We just deal with money. It's just about accounting. But it's always, no, a spiritual ministry. It's a spiritual battle that we're involved in. And Satan is always looking for ways to destroy the church. Consciences are at stake. The church's reputation is on the line. And we want to help people without hurting people. When the church lacks compassion, people get hurt. The church loses her reputation. But when the church cares for needs in unbiblical ways that only encourage laziness then also the reputation of the church and her ministry is hurt. And let me make one more application before we leave the second point. Notice that Paul speaks a couple times with the word idle. The word idle here, the, the original can mean unemployed or nothing to do. It can mean useless or unproductive. <clears throat> and Paul actually says, verse 13, that they learn to be idle. They develop in this way. Because of, because, of, because of the way this is going, they're learning a kind of habit of idleness. And it's a reminder, isn't it, that it's good to have work to do. Being independently wealthy is not good for most of us. It's nice to have a need that we need to fulfill. And if we are independently wealthy, we have to pray each day to want to labor for the Lord. Grace to stay pure and on task. It's good to have work to do in the church. It's good to sign up and commit to some ministry. The old adage, idle hands are the devil's workshop, proves true time and again, doesn't it? When we are not busy in our master's service, when we become idle, it is much more difficult to fight temptations, and there seem to be a host of temptations that sit before us. When we are busy, when we are focused, when we are pressing forward, we breeze past a mountain of temptations, and that's a great blessing. One of my colleagues in the ministry always would tell me that he was happiest when he was busiest, which when I first entered the ministry, I thought it was kind of crazy. I thought, boy, it's always, it's always so much to do, but, but later on, I began to understand it. If we don't have enough to do, then it's hard to do the very little things we have to do. 
But when we have a great amount to do, we don't even think about it. We go to work, we get going, we keep moving, and we're saved from so many things within ourselves. Let me ask you this morning, are you busy enough? That's a rare question, maybe. We should say, I'm too busy. The Word of God would ask you, are you busy enough? Are you devoted in your labors and in your service? If we're retired, are we living disciplined disciplined lives of intercessory prayer on behalf of the church and serving where the Lord grants strength? If we're financially secure, are we devoting our time to good things and not to self-indulgence? If we are young with with the joy of, of youthful strength, are we pouring out that strength in productive ways? And not just self-seeking or lazing around. Or we could ask the question differently, am I learning? Is there anywhere in my life where I'm learning to be idle? Are there habits I've picked up? Are there ways of living by which I'm making myself vulnerable now to temptation? Do you see? First Peter tells us that Christ has redeemed us from an aimless way of life, from a futile existence. We, by our sin, had gained for ourselves an empty, useless life. We were part of Satan's kingdom, a life of misery and work that means nothing. By Christ, we are redeemed and rescued and brought into the kingdom of light, in which there's forgiveness and new opportunity to serve the King of Kings. We each have purpose now. This is what the world lacks. This is why there's so much sorrow in our world. This is why there's so many people on drugs and everything else. People have no purpose. But if we have purpose, brothers and sisters, then let us live that way. When we stand before Christ Jesus at his coming... We don't want to present to him three million hours of useless activity and say, here's my sacrifice. We want to come as these widows that Paul speaks of with a life of good works and say, here, Master, is what I've done with the time and the strength you've given me. It's a joy to serve the king. And it saves us from a world of trouble to be busy in his service. Finally, this morning, the duty of all. Verse 16. Verse 16. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. And do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. And so now the apostle returns to where we were last Sunday night. Verses 3 and 4. Honor widows who are really widows meaning destitute. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Not all widows are equally needy. Some widows have family, and their families should take care of them. And it's not right for for us as family to say, you know, I don't want to give anything up. Go ask the deacons. they got a lot of money. That's not right, the Lord says. If we have widows, take care of them so that the church's resources may be reserved for those who have no one. 
for a woman who lost her husband, or it would be easy to imagine a woman whose family deserts her because of her Christian faith. There's an order of responsibility in the Bible, personal responsibility, then family responsibility, and then church responsibility. Personal responsibility is spoken of in 2 Thessalonians 3, where the apostle says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. This is an important task for the church and especially for parents in this day and age to train up, especially our boys and young men, to see the glory of providing for themselves and for their family. There's an honor in that. And unless we're sick or disabled, to simply lounge around is dishonoring to our Maker and our Redeemer and a good way to fall into sin. So there's personal responsibility, and then there's family responsibility. It's God who arranges our families. We, we ought not to begrudge our needy family members. God in his providence has given you who you have to care for, and he's laid that burden upon you. Bear it for his sake. Personal responsibility, family responsibility, but then there's church responsibility. I found this written in... Lewis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology this week. He writes, It is to be feared that this function of the church is sadly neglected in many of the churches today. There's a tendency, this was written decades ago, there's a tendency to proceed on the assumption that it can safely be left to the state to provide even for the poor of the church. But in acting on that assumption, the church is neglecting a sacred duty is impoverishing her own spiritual life, is robbing herself of the joy experienced in ministering to the needs of those who suffer want, listen to this, and is depriving those who are suffering hardships, who are borne down by the cares of life, and who are often utterly discouraged, depriving them of the comfort, the joy, and the sunshine of spiritual ministry of Christian love, which as a rule entirely, <clears throat> which are as a rule entirely foreign to the work of charity administered by the state. That's interesting, isn't it? Our state takes over more and more and more. And because they also take more from its citizens, it's tempting then to just keep looking to the state. But let's never forget that the church can do something the state can never do. The church can minister gifts of financial support with the gospel. And can say to those in need, your father loves you. And he sees your need. And he cares about you. And he's given you this church family. And we're pilgrims together. We're going to arrive at the great city. Check that comes from the government never comes with the gospel. 
The ministry of the church is infinitely richer than the ministry of the state. And we should never forget that. Well, I know things get complicated in this day and age. And our deacons need continual study and the wisdom of the Spirit and the prayers of God's people. But let us never for a moment assume that the financial support of the state and that of the church are the equivalent. They're utterly different. We are stewards of the wealth of our God. None of us are owners. All that we have is his. Called to use it for our master. To use it in love for the Lord. And to use it for one another. We are to care for the needy in the church. And to do so with great joy. And with great gospel encouragement to those who are receiving the support. And may we learn to say with Job, chapter 29, I delivered the poor who cried out, the fatherless and the one who had no helper, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Saints of God, if we would cause the widow's heart to sing for joy, then wouldn't we cause her father's heart to sing as well. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, in the ministry of your church to the destitute, to the needy, to the orphan and the widow, we see the heart of our God. And we are reminded that we are all by nature, in our sinfulness, destitute, and homeless, and without a helper. But, O Father, how you've loved us, that you sent the one who is infinitely rich to be made so desperately poor, so that we, once and forever, might be taken from our poverty and made infinitely rich. God, we thank you that we are your children, that we have a place in your home, that we have a name card at your table, that our every need is provided. We pray you'd minister to the needy among us through the hands of your people and the hands of the deacons. And may they be greatly encouraged to know, Lord, that it's of your grace and of your love that the gifts of your church speak. And we pray, Heavenly Father, you'd forgive us where in our families or in the church we have been tight-fisted. And we have learned the ways of a selfish world. And we have not opened our hand generously as you have done to us. Cleanse us, O Lord, of this hard-heartedness. Forgive us, we pray. And make us after the pattern of our Father above. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray these things. And Father, we ask for your help to our deacons. In a complex age, may there be a simplicity about living out the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.